There's one. There we go. First Corinthians 15. We're going to be there here in just a second. Yes, in our conversation about uh, seeing our life as part of a greater story, and that's the story of God, changes our perspective, changes the way we see ourselves, changes the way we see our struggles, the way we see our victories, the way we see everything, right? Uh, the way we see the world around us. Uh, I think if we can see our story as a part of a bigger story, uh, it makes um, an incredible, incredible transformation of how we think about and how we live out our life. Um, so we started, anybody remember the four parts of the story of God that we've talked about? Number one part of the story of God. No, 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 that, that's four questions later on. Four parts of the story of God. Creation. creation. Don't jump ahead, Sean. You're always an overachiever. Creation. What's the second part of the story? Fall. Fall into what? Sin. Okay, not like trip and fall in the bushes, but to fall into the sin. Uh, all humanity is uh, affected by a curse from that day forward. Part number three. Redemption. And today's part, anybody know it? Restoration. See, that's somebody that pays attention even when we're not to that point yet because I write it every week, right? She's been in school for the last 30 years. She knows how to listen and take notes. Um, so here we are on this part uh, this morning, restoration. What if I told you So there's different ways to open sermons. You can open them with a cool story, a nice quote, something to catch your attention, uh, a whole lot of things. What if I told you that I could encourage your faith this morning with cow poop? Cow poop. <laughs> Brant said, oh, cow poop. He sounded kind of like Beavis and Butthead right there. Cow poop, Right? Uh, you're like, uh, I, I, I don't know. Cow poop. I'm going to make sense of that. So there's like different things in the world that have a cycle. What, what, somebody defines cycle for me. Like if something has a cycle, then it's a process that repeats itself over and over and over, right? Uh, anybody smarter than me. Yeah, no, I don't, that wasn't the end of the question. That wasn't the end of the question. Anybody smarter than me familiar with the nitrogen cycle? Apparently nitrogen's something that like gives life and we like all need and live off of. Okay? So the nitrogen cycle is this. Precipitation. It comes from the clouds, comes from the air, and it comes in the form of precipitation. Falls to the ground. Uh, and then when it hits the ground, there's a word called fixation. Uh, it's where nitrogen goes into the ground and becomes useful. Uh, it, it does whatever it does to become useful in the ground. And then in, it produces, it helps produce plants. Yeah, that was supposed to be a flower. That was not a flower. Uh, but it produces, helps produce 
uh, foliage, plants, plant life, things like that. But then those plants and that grass that it helps produce helps feed. Wow, that's a good cow. Uh, things like cows. I was about to draw udders on one with horns. That was going to be quite confusing. Because um, most people think horns, bull, udders, heifer. You don't know they can coexist. Most people, not all people are cowboys. So here we have that. And then what do cows do after they eat the grass? They do. They do that. And that goes in the patty form. Or there's another option is... The cow does what? Dies. He either poops or he dies. Or both. Typically both. He poops before he dies. Uh, but then, either the poop or the death back into the ground, doing its thing, and then becoming available to go back into the air Therefore, starting the cycle all back over, coming down through precipitation, into the ground, plant life, cow eats, poops, dies, goes back into the ground, and the cycle happens again. Welcome to science class, 10th grade. What grade level would this be? I don't know. I was not very good in school, not very good in science either. So, how on earth does cow poop encourage my faith? Well... Let me tell you another thing. Story of God, in the same way as nitrogen, is a cycle. You have creation, you have the fall, you have redemption, and then you come back to recreation or restoration. God makes all things new again. It's a cycle. And in the same way as nitrogen, this cycle, as does that cycle, requires death to be a part of the process. If death doesn't happen, there is no recreation. Cow poop. Crap happens. I watched Forrest Gump the other day. It happens. What happens? No, I'm sorry. I could go on that for a while. Does anybody, have you ever watched that? I know that was way before your day. Forrest Gump, sorry. What? Are you offended? <laughs> it's not before anyone's day. So here, here we are. The same process, the same cycle, creation, fall, redemption, Death is all part of this process, and it leads to a new creation. It leads to God recreating or restoring, making all things new again. It goes back into the cycle. Now, I'm not here to say, I think, after we enter the new creation, we're there. Right? I'm not here to present another theory that this is going to all go happen again. We're not going that way. Uh, I believe that Scripture says once the new creation happens, we're there, and that's an eternal place. That's an eternal reality where all things are made new and we live in the presence of God himself. Look at Genesis chapter 1. I lied to you. I told you we were going to go to 1 Corinthians. But we're going to start back in Genesis chapter 1 one more time. 
we're going to start with a bit of a review, not recreation, but a review. So then we're going to go to Sean's questions. You overachiever. Okay. So read with me Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. We're going to read those verses together. And then we're going to ask our questions, the same ones we've asked all month. Who is God? What has God done? And what does that say about who I am or my identity? Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Now we're going to read that together. Somebody want to read that for me this morning? I always read. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. bit of a review here, but this is also a bit of a different perspective because we looked at all of Genesis 1 at one time. Now we're just looking at Genesis 1 and these five verses. Uh, so somewhat a review, somewhat a, 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 a narrowed in perspective. So question number one, who in Genesis, who is God in Genesis 1, 20, what we just read? Creator, Right? He is the creator. He speaks and it becomes whatever's in his mind or his will becomes a reality. Uh, creator. Uh, when the Bible, when Genesis 1 uses the word created, it does not mean he fashioned existing items into a new structure. It means he made something from nothing. He made something from nothing. This word belongs to God. It's only his. It's not used for anybody else, anywhere else in literature. This word is unique to Genesis and the creation account where God creates something out of nothing. Um, so he is creator. Is there anything else? Delegator. Delegator? Okay. So he's, as the creator, he's telling creation what. They get to do. Okay. And he's the only one that has that knowledge at this point. He's the only one that has the knowledge of a judge that gets to discern what's good, what's bad. Um, okay. So what has God done? Question number two. What 
has God done? In these five in these five verses, what does it record him doing? And here, let me. It took me a little while. I'm a little slow, um, so let me let me tell you something that I really noticed really quickly, uh, or really slowly this week. Uh, question number one: Who is God? Right. Question number two: What has He done? Uh, the answer to this, Shelley made the comment the other day. She's like, "It feels like I'm answering the same question. Why is that?" Why does it feel repetitive sometimes to answer question number two from question number one? Because we learn by repetition. We learn by repetition. Yeah. That's why my kids watch the same cartoons over and over. Yeah, because what he does comes from who he is. His identity drives his activity. Activity is birthed from identity. He does number two because he is number one. Okay? That's a profound statement that is about to twist. Something's going on back here. Number three, what, what's number three? Who am I? What's my, remember? Identity. According to this passage, what's my identity? And then what's question number four? What will I do. Okay? So this is a repetitive process. The first two questions focus on what, who God is and what he has done. And his activity therefore gives my identity and my identity therefore gives my activity. Yes. Correct. So as we go through this, you're like, well, that number one and two sound somewhat repetitive. Yeah, but when we answer number four, if this is true, if this is the process we're learning, number four is therefore a response to number three. And I may have misled you at some points during the last few weeks because I haven't completely had that sink deep into my brain. But number four, all we have to do is look back to the answers for number three and say, if that's who I am, what will I do? And then we've got to go back and say, do I believe I am who God said I am? All right? And, and that's the simple question that we get to answer. Simple question, very hard to do. Right? So anyways, I just want to share that with you. So what has God done? He created. Right? Created animals. Is that what you said? Animals, people, and stuff. Well, I was going to say stuff. Life sounds a lot more direct. <laughs> he created everything. Well, we can put that, right? He didn't just create some things. He created everything. Everything that we see comes from him by the sound of his voice and by his will, right? Uh, is there anything else he has done? He blessed. What did the blessing look like? Or what did it include? Multiplication. Be fruitful and multiply. You know what that means? Go have sex and babies. 
have sex and babies. And I'm going to tell you that in the process of giving us the birth process, he gave us sex. That's pretty awesome, right? In that, he has also designed, and I find this the most intriguing thing. This is a side note that is not anywhere in my notes. But I find it incredible that God in his infinite understanding would make multiplication actually somewhat enjoyable, right? Is that not weird, right? He he has created us for the purpose of multiplication and just so that we didn't like fall asleep on that, he's like, I'm going to make that the most desirable thing you have anyways. So it's going to be built into your desires. My will is built into your desires. Now, the fact is that we just completely corrupted it and made it something else. But in the original creation, he's like, this is good. Enjoy it, have babies, and multiply. Right? Interesting. Okay? So he created, he blessed. Um, in his judgment, right, he, he also, like, instructed, do this, don't do that, because I'm the judge and I know. So he gave direction as judge. Remember, these two questions are connected. So, And then that direction is part of being delegator and judge. Creator, he created. Why? Because he's a creator. And in his provisions, he's blessed us. Right? Who he is drives what he does. See that? Now, we're about to see it a little closer when we look at ourselves. So, question number three, what does this say about me? What does this say about you? What does this say about our identity? What does this say? Who does this say we are? Who? We are creation. What did you steal from me? Oh. Steward. Well, what is that? We are to steward or to take care. We are to, I mean, get, get a little deeper into that and say, what does that mean with us and the rest of creation? We're to work. But if you're to, to steward or to take care of, then, then you have actually like some sort of control over the rest of creation. He, is, he has put us as his, his ultimate highest part of creation and says, I want, you to, I want you to take care of and have control over the rest of my creation. Right? That's our role and that's the created order of things that the people, therefore, care for and control everything else for the good of the rest of creation. Right? So he's given us some sort of control. And what's interesting is he has that control and he gives it to us as we're made in his image. That belongs to him, but it's been given to us. All right. Uh, so we are creation. What does he say about us as creation? Ooh, in his image. Now we could go really deep into that, but let's just go back to this because we know who God is now. Right? So the interesting thing is when you say, what does it mean to be made in God's image? People go into far away places to find answers, but we're just going to stay put and delegator, creator, provider, 
judge. All those things are now true about us if we're made in his image. Who he is is now who we are. And we are to represent that on earth for him. Right? We become the image bearers. All the things that are true about him should be true about us. And we are God's image for others to see. Now, multiply and fill the earth with his image. First time I thought that or read that, that was just mind-blowing for me. When God said, multiply and fill the earth, he said, fill the earth with my image, my glory. As you multiply and fill the earth, that for, therefore points back to and brings glory to the creator, the judge, the provider, the delegator. Right? So that's who we are. We are the image of God in creation. Sadly, here's a turning point. I'm going to derail this conversation. Sadly, this is no longer true about humanity or myself. It's just not. For the most part, this is no longer true about any of us. The fall into sin uh, has marred the image of God in all of mankind. Remember? We've got creation, fall, and there's a break here that these things at this point, they're marred, they're fuzzy, they're no, long, they're no longer completely true. We no longer declare who he is through who we are. Sin has distorted that. Uh, and our blessings... Our blessing that he spoke over us hmm. feels like they've turned to cursings. And they have. He says we're cursed above all humanity. We're, I mean, above all creation. So, blessings have turned to curse and control that was given to us. It was delegated to us. That control to oversee and to to control and to, to provide for and direct all creation, that control has been completely lost in our lives at this point. Completely lost. We talked about last week the redemption that was made available. So we had creation, fall, redemption, and then we're going back to this like recreation, restoration that we're getting to today. We talked about redemption that's made available in Christ last week. We talked about how he carried our sin, he carried our sorrow, he died a rebel death in our place. He, being the Son of God, died like a rebel for a rebel so that we could be treated like sons. Right? That's what he did in that redemption process. But still, even now, creation, we live in this reality. So we live in this, this, this in-between. This is us. This is where we live. Redemption's available. He carried your sin. He died a rebel's death, even though we are the rebels. He has taken away sin. He has made promises to make all things new, but they're not yet new. So we live in the middle of Jesus becoming the Messiah for all mankind, promising to make all creation new, yet we live in the gap, believing the promise but not seeing the full reality. Okay? So all the identity that is who God is and then was passed on to us 
we read that and he says that, but we don't see that. Because we're in the in-between state. It's already, but not yet. In the heavenly realms, he says this is already true. But in your earthly place, this is not yet true. Right? Um, How do I know this? Let let me go back to my week. Let me tell you about my week. As I live in the in-between, and he says this was true about me, but in the midst of our fallen state, it's no longer true. At 4 a.m. Wednesday morning, I was awoken by a text. 4 a.m. Wednesday morning, I I woke up. Me and Shelly's phones were both going off, which is rare. First of all, at 4 in the morning, that doesn't happen. Second of all, it doesn't happen to both of our phones at the same time. 4 a.m. Wednesday morning, I woke up to a text message that said, Hey, I need you guys to be praying. Zach has had a stroke. Now, Zach is my friend. Him and Tiffany have worshipped with us together before. Um, and he, on his Tuesday, was his 35th birthday. And at 1 a.m. Wednesday morning, he had a stroke. The day after his 31st, but one hour after his 31st birthday, he, 35th birthday, he had a stroke. And his wife was texting and said, hey, I need you guys to be praying. We're at the hospital. Uh, don't know anything yet, but he's had a stroke. Um, so we go to the hospital and we see all this. Um, and, and, and at 5 a.m., I'm at the hospital sitting with her and with the family. And, and there's just, there's fear and there's, there's, there's all the things that come. Why? Because the control that we have been given, we no longer have. You sit in, sit in the waiting room of a hospital with a family that has a 35-year-old man that has just had a stroke and you don't know if he's going to live. And, 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 and just try to act like you have some sort of control over this world. You don't. You have no control. You're powerless. You're fearful. You you, you just, you don't know what to do. You don't know what's going to happen. It's completely out of your hands. Even the best doctors don't have any power to make any promises. So that was 4 a.m. And then spent the day at the hospital with them. And then I get back home and I'm going to pick up Shelly. And we're going to go back to the hospital because she hadn't been there yet. And then by 4 p.m., uh, Jordan has decided to throw up all over everything. All over everything. I've been awake all day long at the hospital with this, and now Jordan's puking her guts up all over the house. This is awesome. This is awesome. And so my mom graciously says, I'll stay with the kids, even though we've got this stomach bug thing going around the house. And Shelly and I go to the hospital, and by 6 p.m., Shelly's now got the stomach bug. So I bring her home from the hospital, and now i got two out of the six people in my house down for the count. Pretty awesome. It's great. I love it. Uh, And and I'm going to tell you, when I have people in my house that have a stomach bug, I, like, isolate myself, and I hide. I go go on quarantine. Everybody else go upstairs. I'll stay downstairs just... I want to stay away until 48 hours after this thing passes. And I'll live by that, but when you got the mom and the baby down for the count, I don't get that. Uh, I don't get that opportunity. Uh, but so we, we get them to bed, and about every two hours I get up and I change Jordan's sheets because she throws up in them again. I don't know why a three-year-old can't hit a bucket. She can't. Can't hit a bucket. I gave her a bucket. I said, hit the bucket. She can't hit the bucket. Anyways... 
So we're doing that, and then by 2 a.m. on Thursday morning, I get awoke by Justice splattering his room with the stomach bug as well. So here's my week. And I spend the rest of the week trying to quarantine myself from an entire family that's sick. Why? Because I have no control over who goes down next. You have no control over who gets hit with the bug next. Right? In this world where we were created in the image of God and given jurisdiction to to oversee all creation, we now live in a world where we have absolutely no control and any control we feel like we have is only on the surface and it's not real. It's not real. You can go down with a stroke, you can go down with a stomach bug, you can go down with X, Y, or Z and you have At any moment, you can realize, you know what? I thought I was in control of this life. I thought I was in control of my circumstances, but I have no control over what's going on. So at what point this week can you look back and you say, you know what? This is evidence that that I just don't have any control. This is is evidence that all all creation is corrupted by sin. We live in between here. I'm, I'm trying to depend upon the promises of redemption, but then I don't see the promised restoration. I still live where I feel like this is our reality because I have no control. I'm along for the ride, and this is wild and crazy. And, and if God doesn't have control, then nobody has control. At what point this week do you look back and you say, you know what, this is where I realize I have no control? Where was it? Derek? Yeah? Didn't sign up for it, but you got called for it. Jury duty. You can work your schedule, you can plan your schedule, and then when somebody else who has more control than you says it's your time, then you roll with it. But even the government who wants to control when you do and do not have jury duty, do they have control over anything in the world? They have lost control as well. There's no evidence of sovereignty over even the people in our own nation. When you look back in the week and say, you know what? This is evidence that I have no control over life and what's going on. Where are you being taunted by the fact that these are no longer your reality? And actually it says be fruitful and multiply, but it seems like death is more rapid than life. It seems like the control you were given, it's like chasing after wind. Right? Where is it? How do you know that in your week? This is where Sam says, you waited longer for answers 
than I was allowed to be comfortable. He's like, when you wait that long, I get really uncomfortable. So I'm going to wait a little bit longer because I think there's answers that need to be had. I think, I think you're wrestling with things in your life this week. You're like, you know what? As I went through my week, I felt completely out of control. And if something's... I need a promise. I need something that's other than what I see because what I see is falling apart. What I see is broken. <laughs> uh, this is something I've kind of been struggling with in my job search. Uh, because if I was in control, I would just have all the jobs. Because, mm. you know, I, I would be really good at that. But I have absolutely zero control over whether a recruiter picks up the phone and gives me a call. It's like, hey, you watch your resume. Isn't that frustrating? Like, you know you're qualified, you know you'd be great, and then for whatever reason, you don't even get looked at. You don't even get a shot. Why? Because you don't have any control. You got no power. You're along for the ride. And the ride stinks sometimes. Right? And, and, and the, the problem with the fact that we don't even have control over the 24 hours that we've been given is the fact that we don't know how many 24 hours we are given, and we want to maximize every day for every purpose that we have because every day we have and we don't get to maximize it, that's one less day that we get to enjoy. Because you could be 35, and that could be it. None of us are promised 45, right? I don't want to waste my days because I don't have many of them. Because even though the promise was you have jurisdiction, you have control, go multiply, fill the earth, well, death seems to taunt us by happening as or more frequent than life. And every day we lose is just a reminder of that. So here's the deal. Question number four, what will I do? If this is who I am and all this is undone, it's no longer true and we live in the gap, what will I do? And I don't want you to answer this right now because if you did answer this, how would you answer it in the midst of this conversation? It's like if, if this was true, but that's been wiped out, and I live in here, and in here is chaos. It's awful. I have no control. I'm taunted by death. It's like, now what do you do? You run around like a chicken with your head cut off, right? I mean, it's, it's like this. It's like Jesus on the cross, they take his lifeless body off, and they put it in a tomb, and they seal it shut, and they put Roman guards in front, and you go to the disciples, and you say, there's, there's 12 of them gathered in a room. Actually, at this point, there's 11 gathered in a room. And you say, now what? What are you going to do now? And if you would have asked them in the 
first 72 hours after they buried Jesus, what now? What would have been the danger of them making a decision in the first 72 hours instead of after the resurrection? No control. What would have they acted on? Impulse. Fear. Emotion. And that's the same thing with us having this conversation and me stopping right now. Let's go to question four and saying, in the midst of all the chaos, what are we going to do? But let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a little more perspective in the story that's unfolding. We're going to read, uh, let's start by reading 17 through 19. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins, and those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. It's interesting, as I looked at this this week, Paul gives us his own if-then. He gives us his own if-then. What is his if-then? If Christ has what? If he's, not, if he's not been raised. If Christ is dead, let's use it that way, then what's he say about us? It's worthless. This morning is stupid. People outside should feel sorry for you right now. If Jesus is dead, then your faith is of completely no value. And in fact, it's probably worse than worthless because you should be pitied above everybody else in the world. If Jesus is dead, go ahead and make any decision you want to right now about how to respond to the realities we just talked about. If that's the case, do whatever you want. Because if your hope in Jesus is for this world only and this life only, we're all wasting our time uh, and in fact, it's, it's pointless. It's pointless. But then look at verse 35 with me. And I want to read the rest of that section. Because Paul doesn't leave us with that being the if-then that he wants us to know. Verse 35. But someone will ask. He, he says, but actually he says, but Jesus has been resurrected. He has come back to life. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And for now you sow, uh, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain, but, but God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all the flesh is the same flesh. There's a flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There's heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly body is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor, so, that, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 
So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of the dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, I know that's a lot. And I know that's a lot of illustrations, a lot of words, a lot of this, a lot of that. But I want to simplify that as we close this discussion down. Who does this say I am? Because this is the conclusion of the conversation we started in Genesis 1. All that's true. We live in the in-between. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, who are we now? He says it in chapter 15. Focus at the end there. That last section where he says, remember the cycle that the nitrogen rains to the ground, goes in, produces grass, cow eats the grass, (laughs) and then he poops or he dies, and then it produces life again. He says if this or this doesn't happen, then there is no more life. There is no more transformation. There is no future. There is no new thing. This is necessary to new life. That's what he's saying here in verse 15. So he says, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, what is also true of us? Do I... Made alive again. In the what? Made alive in spirit. And if we want to live in eternity with God, with Creator, in the spirit, then what's natural must die. It's like planting a seed in the ground so that new life can come up. He said that seed... Our natural self, everything we've just talked about, that's going to end, but that's not the end. In fact, it produces new life in the spirit that'll be nothing like the old life in the natural. Okay? So in death, this is the way I put it, in death, I will finally live. Okay? That's true about us. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then that's also true of us. He says, what is sown as corruptible, corruption is undone. Corruption is undone. And another word that another translation used, decay. This, what does this do, this body do as it gets older? 
decays, falls apart, droops, sags, hangs, doesn't work. Wow, that's a process of decay. As we bury this body and it continues to fall apart, it has to fall apart. That will all be undone and it will be replaced with incorruptible life. Life that doesn't decay. Life that doesn't come undone. What else does he say? He says that... uh, What row? He says that the dishonor of this life uh, will or is becoming glory. What is dishonorable is becoming glory. What's he say about our weakness? But that it's replaced with strength. The weakness of this life, the helplessness of this life, the the frustration of this life because you have no control is being replaced with strength in the next life. It's being undone. Paul wants us to believe that I am more spiritual than physical. The life we live in the Spirit Paul assumes that it's more real than the life we live in the flesh. What's the last thing that he says? The very last thing. If we we bear the image of man, Adam, in the flesh, we also what? Yep. I am being... Remade in God's image. I'm going to bear that image again, fully. Again, like we did in the beginning. Right? I'm going to bear that image again. So the last question. If this is true, if I'm made alive in the Spirit, therefore the natural must die. Death, in death I will live. My corruption, my decay is being undone and replaced by incorruptible life. Dishonor that I currently live in is being replaced by glory, goodness, things that are celebrated. If in my weakness I'm actually being strong and I'm actually more spiritual than I am physical and being remade in God's image right now as we speak will be finished when Jesus returns and the dead live again. If all that's true, then what? What's my then? If this, then what? Let's say this. If I find life through death, if in death I will actually live, then what? Then there's hope. Hope for what? Paul says somewhere else, he's like, we don't mourn like people who have no hope. Standing at a funeral, in a hospital, in a situation, 
I'm not mourning as if this is the end. We don't weep and wail as people that don't have hope. Why? Because in death, life begins. Completely changes the ICU waiting room. Completely changes the graveside. Right? If I am imperishable or eternal, incorruptible, if I am not corruptible or decaying as I see, but I am actually more eternal than I am decaying in the flesh, then what? Right? What's the... Huh? The one that I thought about with that, if I am actually more eternal than I am corruptible, then I want to invest in heavenly things and not earthly things. If like my life is hidden with Christ in the heavenly things, then why am I spending so much energy, so much money, so much of my time trying to salvage things that are actually decaying in front of my eyes? Why would I not therefore spend that time, that money, that energy, that emotion on things that moth and rust will not destroy? Right? If I spend most of my resources, including time and emotional energy, on things that fall apart, then I don't understand this. I haven't arrived here yet. But if this is true, I want to invest in heavenly things more than I do earthly things. I want to waste my life with stuff that's going to fall apart. Right? I had a Jeep, and, and I spent so much money getting that thing fixed up, and there came a point where I worked on it more than I drove it. Why? Because stuff falls apart. And I could continue to funnel all that resources, time, money into that, or I can escape that and invest in heavenly things. If dishonor is turning into glory, then what? All the things that cause your shame, that cause your fear, that cause your doubt, if all that's being undone, then what? The parts of your story that you hide from, that you don't want to talk about, that you don't want anybody to know, if that's being undone and it's going to be the glory of God that comes through you, then I'm going to go ahead and let you know it now. I'm not going to hide from my story. I'm not going to hide from my past. I'm not going to hide from my shame. If that's true, then I'm going to let that go and we're going to celebrate it now because that's the story of God that's unfolding in my life now. And I'm not going to put on a mask that's going to hide or put a front we can go ahead and let my dishonor out now because my dishonorable things actually reveal the glory of God on a greater level. Right? I'm going to quit faking it. What are you hiding? Right? That's a lie. That's a lie. It says you better hide that. You know why Satan tells you to hide that? Because the glory of God will shine through that brighter than any other place in your life. And the more you hide it, the less it turns to glory. If my weakness is revealing strength, 
You're going to die in weakness, but you're going to raise in strength with a new body. Let's go ahead and let that take, take root now. If that were true, what would I do? Do what? What do we do now, though? It's like in our weaknesses, what do we currently do? <laughs> Cover them up, hide from them. Don't go anywhere near the places that I'm weak in. But if that was being undone and replaced with strength, what would you do? I'd run into it like a warrior. Do it. Quit hiding from your weaknesses, but bust through them. Because this natural, it's passing away. And the beautiful thing is, as we live these truths out today, we get a taste of heaven today. We get a taste of eternity today so that we can be more confident on the day of death of what's coming because we've experienced it today. These things are true most definitely in eternity. Once you die and you're with God in eternity, these things are immediate, immediate. But I believe that you can experience them gradually, increasingly today. You can get a taste of eternity today by living these truths out right now. So last one. If I am again to fully bear the image of God, then what? If I'm going to be made in God's image fully again when I die and I'm raised in the same way that Christ was, then what? What would we do today? What do you feel trapped in that's corrupting you more and more and more? Right? I, I would chase after God's image now and I would cast off anything that hinders that now. If this is, is going to be my ultimate truth, and I'm going to be fully cleansed, fully made in the image of God again, then I want to pursue that image today, and I want to quit waiting and toying with things that are corrupting that more and more. I want to quit tiptoeing in spaces that are causing corruption that are marring the image of God in me today, that are making it impossible for me to multiply that image right now. Because the same command that Adam and Eve were given, go multiply my image in all creation is the same command we have today. Make disciples, multiplying the image of God in all creation as you go. It's the same thing he told Adam and Eve, same thing Jesus told the disciples as he left. Go and multiply. But if I'm not walking in God's image right now, I cannot multiply God's image right now. Right? If I'm not walking in it, I can't multiply. Quit waiting in pools that are corrupting my image. There's a lot to take from this. And I look forward to getting back to messages where I can give you one point to walk away with and just say, do this. But I think this is a skill that if we can learn, it's four simple questions. Who is God? What's he done? Who am I? And what would I do? You won't be dependent on Sunday morning to get 
instructed or fed with the Word of God. You can go home and you can open up a passage and you can ask these four questions over and over and over, and God can speak and cleanse your heart every day without you being dependent upon somebody else. But you can also begin to be made in the image of God. As you do that, you open up God's Word, ask these four questions. He transforms your life, and then you can go out and multiply that image in the lives of others. You can make disciples with four questions in a process. So if you begin to walk in this and not depend upon me to lead you through it on Sunday, God's going to transform your image, transform your life, transform your doing because he transforms your being. And then you can help others go through the same process. You can help them. Be made new in the image of God, learning to follow and trust in Christ. But if we're not walking in that image, we can't multiply it in anybody else's life either. These guys are going to lead us in a song of worship. I hope something, take a nugget, take something, let it sink in. Find your then. What if speaks most loudly to you? What then is most needed in your life today? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for all, all that are with us this morning. I pray that this process that we're learning, uh, that, that we would practice it. I pray that we would.